Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not replace your own financial, tax, legal, or financial product advice. Hi everyone and welcome to My Millennial Money Medical. My name is Dev Raga and I'm your host and in this episode I will explain some of the myths surrounding the stock market and I'll also answer Nayasha's question which is what is a wrap account? We can't do this podcast without the support of Altus Financial. If you're anything like me, you will understand that us medical professionals often have unique financial affairs from taxation minimization requirements, multiple entities for accounting or asset protection for the extra risks we take on. Altus Financial understands these issues and more. Whether you're established in your career with a solid income and looking for next steps or you're after advice about buying into a practice, Altus Financial is for medical professionals who want to feel good about their finances. To speak with Altus Financial about your situation, click the link in the show notes or head to altusfinancial.com.au forward slash m3m. Let's get started. Now, if you want me to discuss a specific topic, don't hesitate to contact me via Twitter or Facebook. And for those of you that are new to the channel, the aim is education, empowerment, and entertainment. Now to the main topic, what are some of the stock market myths I want to take you one by one. I've got about 10 myths that I want to discover and I want to try and provide evidence why they're just myths and they're not valid in 2022. Number one, investing in the stock market is just gambling. I hear this all the time, particularly for people that are not familiar with finances. Now, investing is not gambling. And in fact, speculating even is not gambling. I've done a specific episode on these concepts in episode 135, where I talk about gambling versus speculation in my past life as Deb Raka Personal Finance, if you're interested. So go back and listen to that for the detailed concepts. When you invest in the stock market, you are not just buying a product or service, you own a piece of the companies that you invest in. Now, let's dig a deeper into this concept of what you're actually buying when you buy a stock. Now, When you buy a stock, it represents an equity purchase of a company. This means you have a share on its assets and its profits. The biggest mistake you can make is to think of stocks like trading applications or products. It's not. It's actually a piece of the business you own in it. When you buy a stock in a company, you're assessing its present value, which is basically what it's worth now, accounting for all of the profits it is expected to make in the future, knowing that money today is worth more than money tomorrow. Now, in the short term, who knows what the stock is going to do? And that specific theory is called random walk theory. Now, I digress a little bit, but I think it's interesting. And let's have a look at this subconcept a little bit detailed. What is random walk theory? Well, Burton Malkul, if you Google or maybe YouTube his name, there are some great videos that he has on YouTube, um, was a professor at Princeton uh, University. 
And he popularised this with the theory in the modern era on the back of what's called the efficient market hypothesis, which is popularised by William Sharp, who was a professor at the University of Chicago. The basic premise is this. Stocks take an unpredictable path in the long run, so there is no point in predicting them. It assumes that the market is relatively efficient and uses all of the information available to price the stocks. And that's impossible to beat the market without taking additional risk. Now, there's a famous Wall Street Journal dartboard context, and I think it might actually be still going on to prove this theory. They got professional investors to pick stocks. And they got Wall Street journalists to throw a dart blindfolded at the page with all of the stocks. It turns out, after 140 contests, the professional experts won 87 times and the dart throwers won about 55 contests. So when you extract this to compare with the Dow Jones industrial markets, the experts only beat the market 76 times. So basically, a bunch of experts couldn't beat the market consistently over 60% of the time, then what's the point? Now, perhaps I need to do an episode specifically on this theory called random walk theory and how it relates to technical and fundamental analysis. Maybe something I'll do in the future. Now, compare investing to gambling. Gambling is a zero-sum game. There is no net change in wealth. Basically, one person's gain is another person's loss. Investing is nothing like this. When you gamble, you don't own anything. You are paying for an experience. It's a form of entertainment which provides a dopamine rush when you win. Gambling doesn't create any value overall. Now, in investing, there are elements of gambling, particularly when you talk about options trading, futures trading. There are examples of zero-sum game strategies because in those Forms of investing, you don't own any stock. You're merely betting on stocks based on their future price direction and trying to profit off those bets. Now, I've done an episode on all of this, episode 56, where I talk about options, put and call options, futures, warrants. Uh, If you really want to geek out, you can go back and listen to it. But investing is not the same as gambling. Now, here's what stock ownership, it's not. You are not the boss, unless, of course, you're a majority shareholder. I'm recording this at the time uh, that Elon Musk has just put a bid in to buy Twitter. Um, So he wants to be the majority holder. Now, if you're a minority shareholder, you can't just rock up to a company and start telling people what to do. Um, And, you know, even then, if you don't work for the company or its management. So you can't just rock up and say, I'm a stockholder. You need to do this for me. As an owner of a stock, you have placed your faith into the management of the company. Now, most of the time, a company's executives also own the stock that you own, often more than you own. So their vested interest is to make sure the company does well, which affects the share price and holdings, and therefore eventually their own net worth, and also helps them get executive bonuses. So the company executives, you know, future strategy, or their vision, kind of aligns with yours. That is, they want to make more money. Now, even though you don't directly control a company being a minority shareholder, you do have a right to vote for the management you think will do the best for the company. Now, if you're a stockholder, 
you don't get discounts on goods and services of companies you own stock in. So when you own a stock, you get a share in the company's profits. You can't just rock up to a company and say, hey, I want a discount as a shareholder. Imagine if you're a CBA shareholder and you rock up and ask for a massive discount on mortgages stating, I'm a shareholder waiving your share certificate. Although technically those certificates don't technically exist in real life. Um, It's all done electronically now. Now, if that did happen though, supposing you did do that and supposing it proves okay, then basically it eats into the profits of CBA, which directly impacts on the company's profits and therefore your share price, which is counterproductive for you as a shareholder. So just because you're a shareholder doesn't mean you get discounts on goods and services. Now, to highlight this concept, let's use an example. Take two companies, Devraga Burgers. There are two outlets. It offers discounts to its shareholders where they eat at the burger outlets. Given the number of shareholders is just a small group of friends, the discounts don't add up too much. Then there's Devraga Financial Services, which is a big bank. It has millions of shareholders. Now, if it offered discounts to every shareholder then basically it eats into the revenues and profits. And we know revenue is what drives stock prices. So any losses from the discounts is reflected in the poor stock prices. And this has a negative overall impact, which should be much more substantial. Although a discount sounds good initially over time, the losses compound significantly. So that's why getting discounts as a shareholder for a large company is not a good idea. Now, the third thing about owning stock is you own the company or a portion of it and some of its assets, but not all of its assets. What this means is you can't rock up to a company because you own shares in it and start thinking you own the desk, the chairs and the furniture. Why? Because usually for those assets, the companies borrow money and use that money to buy such assets. Therefore, the debtors have a hold on those assets until they get their money back. So if the company becomes insolvent, they sell those assets, they pay off the debtors first before you as a shareholder seize any money. What does all this mean? Myth number one busted, investing in stock markets or stocks is not the same as gambling. Myth number two, the stock market is only for rich people. This is a common misconception that the stock market is only for rich people or exclusive people. In 2022, this couldn't be further from the truth. Now, when I got into Vanguard, back then it was called retail and wholesale index funds. The entry point for retail investors was $5,000. The entry point for wholesale investors was half a million dollars. Now, I was lucky enough to get into the wholesale side of things because the retail side of things was more expensive in terms of fees. Now, you don't need that much at all. You only need about 500 bucks or even $1,000 to get started with most brokerage firms or ETF companies. When traders using analytics to make trades, all they're using is information. When you think about it, information is so much more readily available now than ever before. So the advantages that some traders had in the past is slowly being eroded. Now, you're also competing with people in the government and banks who make big decisions, so The information war is not always going to be on par with those high-level people, but overall, the playing field now is more fairer than 30 years ago. So, it's cheaper, more efficient, easier entry point, low cost, 
less friction, and to do all that is so much easier to start investing now. And there's so much more widely available information about investing in personal finance now than ever before. So make use of it and maximize it to your advantage. So stock market is not only for rich people. It's more accessible now than ever before. Myth number three, buying a stock when it falls is always a good strategy. Now, just because a stock is trading at a 52-week low doesn't mean it's a good buy. This is a common myth. Now, there are many examples of this in the current tech market. Uh, some tech companies are down 30 to 50% from their peaks. Um, Afterpay is a classic example of this. This financial year, it's down 44% at the time of recording from its peak of $180 per share at the start of the financial year. Now, let's use an example to highlight this concept that buying a stock when it falls is always a good strategy, which is a myth. Assume there are two companies. Company ABC is in the data analytics business. They've come up with an innovative way to present the data. The data relates to healthcare and they're able to easily visualise the data for healthcare for hospitals. And some of the data that they can easily visualise are bed capacity, bed occupancy, patients in department, patients in waiting room, patients in elective list, current theatre activity. More and more data is being used in this space and most of the state-based healthcare is based on activity-based funding. Due to the data being required for regular reporting to the state health department, the company has done really well in the last 12 months when it peaked at $50 per share. The starting price of the share was actually at $20. But there are various competitors in the market, and there is now a new competitor who is competing for this space at a fraction of the cost. As a result, due to loss of market share, company ABC stock plummets and now is only trading at $10 per share, below its starting price. So, just to recap, you have a data analytics company, initially started trading at $20 per share, peaked at $50 per share, and now is trading at $10 per share. Now, there's another company called Company XYZ. They're a startup in the field of office space management. Since COVID, office space costs have reduced due to rising work-from-home opportunities for employees. Now, Company XYZ is able to publish office space rentals at live price competing for their customers. They're a much smaller company. Their share price started at $5, but now is trading at $8. And it's an exciting business to be given the pandemic has changed the way people view office spaces altogether. So which company will you buy? Company ABC, whose stock started at $20, went up to $50 and now trading at $10. Or company XYZ, which is much smaller, starting at $5 and now is worth $8. Surprisingly, the majority of investors will actually choose company ABC stock because they believe it'll go up back in value. Remember, the stock started at 20, went to 50 and now trading at 10. So people will buy that thinking that it's going to go back up to 50. But this is a major flaw in their thinking. That is, stocks will go back to their previous highs and just because it's trading at a discounted price, it means it's a good thing. Buy low, sell high. Now, the concept here is trading is very different to investing. Price alone is just one factor to consider when buying stocks. Remember, buying stocks is not just any old asset, it's equity into a business. So make sure if you do active investing and buying individual stocks, you got to do your due diligence before you buy any of those stocks. The aim of the game is buy wonderful businesses at reasonable prices, not buy reasonable companies at a bargain basement price. 
Buffett's philosophy. Myth number four. The more stocks you own, the better it is. Because diversification is always a good thing. Well, yes and no. I did a specific episode about this in episode 203 called Diversification, and I discussed this concept where buying heaps of investments with similar correlations may in fact result in overall lesser returns due to costs and fees. The aim is to try to diversify in sectors, but also within sectors. Let's use an example to highlight this point. Amy is a doctor who's keen to get into the stock market. She's done some research and noted returns in the NASDAQ index funds have been exemplary, particularly in the last 10 years. She starts investing into it. It's great that she decides to use passive investing and index investing as a strategy. But notice she only invests in the NASDAQ, which is mainly tech-based stocks. So there isn't much exposure to anything else. The good thing here is index investing is good. But the stocks or the companies within the NASDAQ are all correlated with one another. So Amy technically has under-diversified. Now suppose Amy then decides to invest in the following ETFs. VAS, ASX200 from BetaShares, STW from Spider, IOS from iShares Core ASX200, and MVW, Vanek ETF. Is that a better strategy? Well, it's good that Amy now has chosen to be more diverse by investing outside of the NASDAQ and having more diverse ETFs, But notice again, each ETF within holds very, very similar assets. Again, the correlation here is too high. She's probably better off just sticking to one or two of these ETFs if she really wanted to invest outside of the NASDAQ. So there comes a point where having too much diversification is actually a bad thing. Make sure you diversify in all sectors and make sure sectors are not correlated and also ETFs are not correlated. Otherwise, you're just increasing your risk, increasing your fee structures for very little benefit, if at all any benefit. If you want to own individual stocks, I think about 20 or 30 stocks in various markets and sectors should achieve reasonably good diversification. So that's myth number four. Diversification or the more stocks you own, the better it is. Myth number five is gains and losses are considered equal. Now, this is purely a mathematical play. Here's why, and let's use an example to highlight this myth. Amy is a dental assistant and has bought company ABC stock at a price of $5 per share. She owns 1,000 shares at a total value of $5,000. Company ABC stock now crashes by 20%, so its current price is $4 per share. Amy's share portfolio has lost $1,000, so it's now valued at only $4,000. The question now is, how much does the share price need to rise by again for Amy to recoup all of the losses? If you said 20%, then you're wrong. And here's why. 20% of $4 is only 80 cents. Now, if it raises by 20% again, the stock price is now only $4.80. She is still 20 cents short of its previous price. Her portfolio is now only valued at $4,800, but she started at $5,000. For Amy to recoup those losses of 20%, the stock price will need to rise by 25% or a full dollar from $4 to $5. So a stock price fall of 20% from $5 requires a 25% gain to recoup those losses. Know your percentages as most of the stock price fluctuation is discussed in percentages. 
Now, personally, I prefer to use the point system because one point is one point and it can't be manipulated too much. Now, let's digress just a little bit here and talk a little bit about losses and gains and how to calculate them. When there's a gain in your portfolio, it means the value of your portfolio is more than what you spent to purchase it. When there's a loss in your portfolio, it means the value of your portfolio is less than what you spent to purchase it. The formula for this is net gain or loss equals the current stock price minus the original stock price divided by the original stock price. Multiply the whole thing by 100 to get a percentage. Now let's use a real life example of this concept. Amy is a water assistant and has been an investor for quite a while. More recently, she has got rid of all of her individual shares and bought into VAS, which is basically the Australian ETF, which tracks the top 300 companies in Australia, and that tracks the ASX 300 index, essentially. On the 20th of Jan 2022, she buys 100 units of VAS at $93.94 per unit. On 27th of January 2022, it drops to $87.40 per unit. So what's her loss? Using the formula, her loss is 87.4 minus 93.94 divided by 87.4 multiplied by 100. So her loss is around 7.48%. Now, as per the ATO, the gains and losses are categorised as short-term or long-term depending on the holding period. If Amy held VAS for longer than 12 months, which she didn't, and she made the money, she would get a 50% capital gains discount. So tax is only applied on the 50% gain. If Amy held VAS for shorter than 12 months and made money, she would not get any of this discount and will need to pay tax on the total gain. Why? Because this incentivizes people to invest wisely and for the long term. So it's important to always calculate percentage gains and losses rather than dollar value gains or losses. And also, it's important to learn how much capital was required to get those gains. This is the next level concept that I want you to understand. So let's use an example to highlight this additional concept. Let's assume Amy buys 100 shares in company XYZ stock. Each share is purchased for $10. That's an investment of $1,000. Suppose four months later, the share price is now $18. This means the value is now $1,800 of her portfolio. The profit is therefore $800. That's pretty good. Now, let's use another situation where Amy buys 1,000 shares in company ABC stock. Each share is now purchased for $10. That's an investment of $10,000. Suppose four months later, the share price is $10.80 per share. This means the value is now $10,800 of her portfolio. The profit is still the same $800. So in the first scenario, she buys company XYZ stock and makes a profit of $800. The value goes from $1,000 to $1,800. In the second scenario, she buys company ABC stock and the value goes from $10,000 to $10,800. Again, the same $800 profit. Is that a good thing? Well, not really. Because it took 10 times more capital to generate the same profit of $800 in the second scenario. So knowing the percentage gains is far more important and also how much money was required in the first place to generate those profits or returns. 
So let's take it one step further. What was the return for Amy on company XYZ stock when it went from $10 to $18? The gain was 80% on her initial investment. What was the gain for Amy for company ABC stock when it went from $10 to $10.80? The gain was only 8% on her initial investment. So the concept here is gains and losses can look great or can look very bad depending on the tools you use. Let's go for a quick break. And when I come back, we'll continue to learn about more stock market myths. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back, and let's go on to more stock market myths. Myth number six, taking on more risk means you will always get higher returns. I've done an episode specifically on financial risk, episode 75 in my previous life as Dev Braga Personal Finance, where I go into detail about the various risks in finances. The common myth here is risk-reward ratio is linear. It's not. Just because you take on more risk doesn't mean it translates into more rewards. Now, I'm a doctor and in medicine we use evidence to try and dispel myths. Evidence-based medicine is widely practiced across all areas of medicine. A good example of how evidence-based medicine is practiced and has changed in the last 30 years in the most simplest form is the use of antibiotics for throat infections. A patient who presents with a sore throat but it's not septic and is likely to not benefit from antibiotics at all, even if the sore throat is as a result of a bacterial infection. So, if you go see a doctor, don't be surprised, even if you've got bacterial tonsillitis, you don't need antibiotics. The vast majority of people don't need it. And the reason is because they did a study, lots of studies, and they found that antibiotics overall, although it kill the bacteria, may not actually make much of a difference to the recovery of the patient. Now, the use of antibiotics in Australia has changed significantly in the last 30 years of medicine, where the prescription of antibiotics, even for bacterial tonsillitis, for non-septic patients, is often redundant. So, 
a lot of GPs and a lot of doctors, a lot of emergency doctors, don't prescribe antibiotics for sore throats because it's pointless. Of course, there are some exceptions to this rule, such as scarlet fever, high-risk patients, indigenous patients in certain geographical locations due to the risk of rheumatic heart fever. But overall, due to antibiotic stewardship programs, we've learnt a lot that prescribing willy-nilly antibiotics to people with sore throats is largely a pointless exercise. Why? Because evidence. So let's use the same principles in terms of evidence to the world of finance and investing. What is risk? It's a measure of your potential downside loss of capital in the event your investment turns into an unexpected direction. One of the things which affects your risk is volatility of the investment and your investment time horizon. For example, generally, if you stick to a broad market index fund investing, although short-term volatility is a risk, the long-term overall risk is actually quite low. It's actually next to zero. In fact, in the Australian stock market, over the 10-year time frame, statistically, you have a 99% chance of ending up with more money than when you started, provided you didn't muck around with your investment. Just let it be. That is, in famous Bogle's words, in investing, don't do anything, just stand there. There have been studies done in the US market where they've taken all the low-volatility stocks and all the high-volatility stocks and analysed them over 60-plus-year time horizon. And this is what they found. The low-risk portfolio of stocks, as measured by lower volatility, actually outperformed the high-risk portfolio of stocks as measured by higher volatility. So just because you took on more risk doesn't mean your rewards are greater. Here are the statistics. The low-risk portfolio actually had 11% return annualised. The high-risk portfolio only had a 7% return annualised. So what this showed... Evidence is that taking up more risk doesn't always equate to getting higher returns. Now, the next sub-concept here is it progresses to the risk-reward ratio concept. This is simply a ratio which determines how much reward you will get for every dollar you spend as an investment. For example, if you spend a dollar in an investment and your potential reward is $7, the risk-reward ratio is 1 is to 7. This concept is more used in trading rather than long-term investing. That is, the concept is more about looking at the downside and not only at the upside of this risk. Let's use an example to highlight this sub-concept. Amy is a veterinarian and has decided to invest in company ABC stock. Each share price is $20 and she wants to buy 100 shares at a total cost of $2,000. She's concerned about a risk and her investing time frame is long-term but she's not afraid to sell it if the market drops or if the price hits a target exit price. Her target exit price is $30 per share and her stop loss price is $15 per share. That is, if the price of the share drops to $15, she's willing to sell her holdings to prevent her from losing more than $500 for this investment. And if the price of the share reaches $30, she's willing to close out her position and take the profit of $1,000. So what is a risk-reward ratio? Amy is willing to risk $5 per share to potentially get a return of $10 per share. Therefore, her risk-reward ratio is 5 is to 10 or 1 is to 2, one half. Now, suppose Amy wants to lower this risk further. What can she do? Well, she could modify her stop-loss orders and set it at $18 
but she still keeps her exit position at $30 per share for, for the upside. Let's have a look at how this affects her risk-reward ratio. Amy is now willing to risk $2 per share to potentially get a return of $10 per share. Therefore, her risk-reward ratio is 1 is to 5. But there's a problem with this approach. Initially, it appears as if Amy has created a lot of upside for a company ABC stock by only taking a $2 risk for every $10 gain. Because remember, in the first scenario, she took a $5 risk for the $10 gain. But the next concept you need to understand here is, by doing this, Amy has reduced her probability of this ever happening because she's more likely to hit the $18 stop-loss order compared to the previous $15 stop-loss order. The only way she reduces this probability of occurring is company ABC is a very low volatility stock. But this also means she will reduce her probability of the stock ever reaching $30 in the short term. So taking on more risk does not always result in more rewards. Learn about risk-reward ratio. In fact, we do this all the time in relation to paying off a mortgage or investing. We are calculating the probability of us losing money in the stock market over a defined period of time compared to just taking the safe approach of paying off non-deductible debt. That's myth number six. Risk-reward. Not always linear. Myth number seven. A low stock price means it's undervalued. This is actually happening a lot in many investment classes. Property, crypto, commodities. Price does not tell the whole story about an investment success or rewards. Going back to basics on what is a stock, it's a small part of a company which you now own. And this means you get to get a small proportion of the company's profits. The only way to come up with a fair price for a company stock is analysing the companies, their sales, their earnings, their cash, their debt, their profits, their management. I've done episodes about all of this in episode 76 called Corporate Actions, episode 77 Price to Earnings Ratio, episode 78 Price to Book Ratio if you're interested for all those geeky elements. So a low stock price doesn't always mean it's undervalued. Myth number eight. Everyone needs a financial advisor to invest in the stock market. Slightly controversial one, but stick with me. The value of financial advice is to learn about your individual risk, individual goals, and individual retirement plan. Although it's good to have a financial advisor by your side at all times, the financial advisor has to be an educator. They need to take you on a journey of financial education to make sure you understand why you're invested in certain asset classes at various stages in your life and adjust your risk profile associated with it. Having said this, is it always necessary to have a financial advisor all the time? Well, probably not all the time. For example, it might be okay to get a statement of advice from a financial advisor or planner who provides a roadmap for various scenarios. It kind of sets the scene. It might be enough initially, and it may cost two to $5,000 depending on your circumstances. Then it just might be a matter to consider your options and execute that plan and then retouch base with them a bit later on. It all depends on your affordability. It might also be completely fine to geek out on the financial concepts and not have an advisor as well, depending on how much time you're willing to put on in terms of your own investments. Now, you've got to know the pros and cons and you've got to make an informed choice. Financial advice is not cheap, but it can be very useful. There's no right or wrong answer, but generally speaking, it's good to get advice because the stakes are very high and you need to analyse 
your personal situation. Myth number nine, sequence of returns doesn't matter. I discussed the concept of sequence of returns risk way back in 2019, one of my favorite episodes back in episode 28. It's an eye opener. The moral here is sequence of returns does matter and is a risk we all have to take at some stage and we're taking it right now. There is no way around this unless you freak out and convert all of your assets into fixed rate assets like bonds or term deposits or bank deposits. Even then, the risk is there, but it's minimized to some extent. What is sequence of returns risk? Now, when you plan for retirement after achieving financial independence, working hard all of those years, you finally work out if your portfolio returns an average of 8% per year, compounded annual rate growth, then you can withdraw down X amount of dollars per year and even accounting for inflation at 3% per annum, your money will last you Y number of years. It's a very simple calculation and you can use any retirement drawdown calculator to work this out. But, and this is a big but, this sort of calculation assumes everything is hunky-dory, everything is stable and everything always works. The past three years, we know everything doesn't work. There are wars, pandemics, labour shortages, supply chain issues all the time. And of course, politicians who say and promise a lot of things, while capitalistic economies try and solve problems, which many have also creating problems along the way, like environmental destruction, geopolitical tensions, taxation fraud, blah, blah, blah. The world is an amazing place. Humans are amazing. But unfortunately, the world is also a very ugly, crappy place for some people. And some humans are just despicable. But you need to factor in a plan in the event of a start of your retirement, there is a major crash like the GFC or COVID or wars or whatever it is. Because that crash initially can erode your retirement plans pretty quickly if you don't account for it. Let's use an example to highlight this point. Amy is a nurse who's worked hard all of her life. Shout out to all the nurses listening. You do work very, very hard. It's a very tough job uh, what nurses do. Her kids are grown up and they've moved out. Her husband is also retiring soon and so is Amy. They're looking forward to a joyful retirement, as they should be after 40 years in the workplace. Outside of their home, Amy's portfolio is $100,000. They decide to use Rob's portfolio initially and not touch Amy's portfolio at all. In scenario one, the returns are the first year 25% positive, second year 15% positive, third year 5% positive, fourth year negative 5%, and fifth year negative 20%. So the first three years are great, and the next two years are not that great. So what happens to a portfolio of $100,000? After five years, her portfolio will be worth $114,712, and that's a CAGR of 2.78%. That's an annual compounded growth rate. This assumes they don't touch the money, which is pretty unrealistic. I know that Rob wants to use his money first in terms of retirement, but Amy may want to use hers as well. So what happens if they do touch the money? Maybe, say, withdraw $10,000 per year from Amy's portfolio. Remember, Rob is still using his portfolio initially for their funding of their retirement, but maybe Amy wants to withdraw $10,000 for those extra perks like a holiday or something like that that she may want to go on. Amy's portfolio after five years is now only worth $70,000 with a compounded annual growth rate of negative 4.77%. That's for scenario A. Let's use scenario B. 
Supposing in this scenario, year one, you have a negative 20%, year two, you have negative 5%, year three, you have positive 5%, year four, you have positive 15%, and year five, you have positive 25%. That is, the first two years are horrible, but then things get a lot better. How would this affect Amy's portfolio? What happens if she then withdraws, in addition to that, like we said, $10,000 per year from her portfolio? Again, the majority of retirement lifestyle is funded by Rob's portfolio. So how would that affect Amy's portfolio? Now, after five years, her portfolio is only worth $47,000 with a compounded annual growth rate of negative 12.21%. That's why sequence of returns matters, especially during retirement. Now, what would have happened to Amy's portfolio if this was during her working years and she kept contributing $10,000 per year? That is, they're not retired, she's still working, she's got 100k and she contributes to it. In scenario A, that is, three good years first and two bad years later, the portfolio would have grown to $159,000 at a compounded annual growth rate of 7.64%. In scenario B, that is, two bad years initially, and then three good years later on, the portfolio would have still grown to $182,000 at a compounded annual growth rate of 10.65%. What? In this scenario B, despite the sequence of returns being a problem during accumulating phase, Amy makes more money. But in retirement phase, if she withdrew that $10,000, she makes less. That's right. This is why I say when the market crashes, buy more because you get everything on the cheap. So sequence of returns risk is a good thing for accumulators, but it's a bad thing for retirement. Lastly, myth number 10. Dividend yield investing is always good. This is a common myth. I discussed the concept of yields during my dividend episodes number 31, what is dividend investing? Episode 65, Dividends versus Distributions, and Episode 102, Dividend Reinvestment Plans. Now, yield is basically earnings for an investment over a defined period of time. A dividend is basically a cash payment called a distribution from the company's profits or earnings. So yield can just be a dividend or include the returns on capital as well. So let's use an example to highlight this principle. Supposing Amy buys company ABC stock at $10 per share, and supposing that stock rises in value to $12 per share. Now, supposing that stock also pays a dividend of $1 per share. The yield would be capital growth of $2 plus $1 dividend divided by $10, which is 33% yield. That's a phenomenal yield. Notice the denominator is the price of the share. If the price of the share is low, it makes it appear that the yield is higher. Therefore, does this mean a higher yield is always a good investment? Of course not, because the price of the share is low. Now, dividend yield is an investing concept which many investors use, and they choose to pick stocks with high rates of dividend yields. To highlight this concept, let's use an example. Amy buys company ABC stock at share price of $10 per share. It pays dividends of a dollar per share. Therefore, the dividend yield is 1 divided by 10, which is 10%. That's pretty good. Now, let's look at 12 months later 
when the stock price is now only $5 per share. It still pays dividends of $1 per share, therefore the dividend yield now is 1 divided by 5, which is 20%. That's phenomenal, right? Wrong, because the dividend yield has doubled because the stock market's price has actually halved. It's gone from $10 per share to $5 per share, and it makes your yield appear as if it's gone up. So try not to fall for the dividend yield trap. In my humble opinion, a good investment long-term is one that rises in value and during that time pays you an income. And hopefully that rises over time as well. Otherwise, it's just speculation. That's about it when it comes to stock market myths. I hope you found that useful. 10 myths that I thought would be very, very relevant even in 2022 and even in the future. Now, before I finish up, I had a very interesting question from Nyesha who asks, Hi, Dev. What is a wrap product or an account? Can you please discuss this? Thanks, Naisha. Great question. And I think it's also worthwhile to also discuss wraps versus what's called a master trust. Because many people think they're the same thing, but technically they're not. So what is a wrap account? Basically, it's when you have all of your investments in the one place. Your entire portfolio is managed as a whole. And it makes things easier, particularly for money flows into the cash account. The main advantages are reporting, the ins and outs, the paper trails, which are much easier. You can include your super as well if one of these wrap products if you really wanted to. Compare that to a master trust. So what is a master trust? Now, the main difference here is a wrap account offers more choices in terms of what type of investments can be held within it, whilst a master trust, although it has a very similar concept, you can't hold individual shares in these accounts. In master trusts, you're restricted to holding managed funds in one of these, and that's about it. So let's go through the main differences between the two. First of all, the wrap account. Number one, you can hold direct investments such as property, shares, ETFs, as well as managed funds. The investments are managed by a trustee, but the investments are held under the underlying investor's name. Number two, the fees and charges are separate to the investments, so they're not bundled in. Number three, it uses a cash account for its ins and outs of money. Number four, franking credits are distributed to investors via the cash account. And number five, the transfers of assets from one wrap account to another is actually quite easy. How does this compare to the master trusts? Number one, can't hold direct investments like property or shares. You can only hold ETFs or managed funds. Number two is investments are held on behalf of the investor via a trustee. It's probably worthwhile listening to an episode that I did way back in episode 61 where I talk about trusts. Number three is fees and charges unbundled into the managed funds unit price and some people find this much easier to deal with. Number four is income is paid to the master trust then distributed to its members. Number five is franking credits are built into the unit price of the managed funds. And number six is you can't easily switch between master trusts. The only way to do this is sell all of your investments and that means you may be realising some of the losses or gains, then buy everything again. Of course, with this comes additional transaction costs. So what's the big deal? What's the advantage of these accounts? The aim here is if you consolidate your investments and structurise it in a way that it's all in one big basket, you can reduce your effort your time, and potentially save money when it comes to costs and fees. It also provides access to a wide range of investments, 
which you may not have access to as an individual, like wholesale funds, which have lower fees. You can also pull large numbers of investors' monies to drive costs lower. And at tax time, you get consolidated reporting from all of your investments from within the wrap account, and otherwise it's up to you to chase each investment statement. And who does it generally suit? Generally speaking, people have a fair amount of wealth or larger sums of money to invest. That's the sort of people that it may suit. It's true. If you have loads of money, life does get easier to some extent and more investment opportunities do come your way. Kind of unfair, really. Now, what are some of the disadvantages of wrap accounts or master trusts? Fees. Although they say fees can be lower, sometimes there are additional fees on top of more fees. Sometimes there are fees to get in. Sometimes there are fees to get out. Of course, there's fees for the investments. And of course, your advisor fees. Advisors make money out of these wrap accounts. They get a margin for recommending such products. So if you do select wrap accounts after talking to your advisor, you've got to ask them if they get a cut. Because transparency, in my view, is key. How do master trust and wrap accounts perform? It entirely depends on the actual investments you have within them. Remember, the accounts are an ease of administration of your investments. The accounts themselves are not investments. You still need to choose the investments within them. Fees matter, and they matter a lot. Here are some basic questions you need to ask before you sign up for a master trust or a wrap account. Number one, is the wrap account or master trust only available via a financial advisor? If so, what are the fees for that said advisor? Number two, are there any entry fees? This is called loading in America. They have loaded funds where you pay upfront percentage fees to get into a fund. Is it something similar for wraps? You've got to check. Step three, is the account only offered through your financial advisor, in which case if you change accounts or advisors, then do you need to change the whole thing? This may not be cost effective due to fees and also realisation of any capital gains within the wrap accounts, which may be taxable. Number four is, if a company provides wraps or master trust accounts, does this mean the investments available using those accounts is also from the same company? For example, Macquarie, they have a wrap account feature. You need to check if you're using Macquarie wrap if they prefer to use their own investment funds within that wrap account. And if so, is it cheaper or more expensive? What are the implications if you choose a non-Macquarie investment product using a Macquarie wrap account? This is getting into the weeds a little bit, but basically it's called a captive investment. If you select a particular brand, are you then locked into that particular brand's investment structures? Now, in terms of fees, here are the types of fees you need to check, as they may charge them. Number one, entry and exit fees. Do you need to pay fees each time you invest? And if so, how much? Number two is ongoing fees. Yearly fees exist for such accounts. How much is it? This is just for master accounts or wrap accounts. Basically, it's for ease of accessing your investments all in one place. Number three is advisor fees. This is the fees charged by your advisor for administering your wrap accounts. Number four is account keeping fees. This is the fee charged by the wrap account provider. Number five is fund management fees. Now, these fees we all have to pay. This is the fee which managed funds or ETFs charge which is usually the same as what you and I pay if we were to do it out ourselves, generally speaking. Number six is transaction costs, switch, switching costs. What are the brokerage costs? What are the costs to switch accounts need to be factored into this? And number seven is 
fees are always negotiable. So negotiate hard if wraps and master trusts are something you wish to consider. Don't accept the fees they give you. Haggle. Now, lastly, what is a baby wrap account? Wrap accounts initially were marketed for people who have a fair amount of money to spend. Around $500,000 to $1 million would be the usual entry point. A baby wrap account is often called a light wrap. This is basically suitable for people with less money or smaller accounts. That's about it for wraps. That's about it for Master Trust. Do I have one? No. My investing strategy is very simple. I utilize the five principles and I just execute them. I'm an aggressive saver, an investor, and I think the stock market is going to be my ticket to financial independence. That's about it for this episode. Now, I had a review from Inquisito65 who writes, Great podcast, except Dev uses doctors in almost every example. Like it or not, there are other professionals in this planet. And this particular person, unfortunately, only gave the podcast three stars. Yikes. Now, I thought I would perhaps explain the evolution of this channel so it provides some context for this review. If you listen to episodes prior to the 13th of December 2021, you will notice different artwork and a different name for this channel. It used to be called Devraga Personal Finance. Between 21st of July 2018 and 13th of December 2021, that's what it was called, Devraga Personal Finance. And I did 136 episodes under this banner. I posted it on medical chat forums, Facebook groups, so the majority of my listeners were doctors. Because I'm a doctor. That's all I knew. It then evolved into a space for doctors to learn about money. And that's mainly because I only posted it on medical forums. I didn't market it. I didn't tell anyone about it myself. I didn't even think anyone would even enjoy it. It was just a fun project. Remember, it all started because I wanted to leave a 10-episode blueprint for my two young kids in the rare event their father wasn't around to teach them about money. Then it just got a bit too big. Other healthcare workers started listening to it. They found it relevant. Nurses. Dentists, allied health professionals, nurse practitioners, IT staff. Then I needed some staff and help with the quality, the channel feeds, the show notes, the editing and marketing. Hence, I joined the My Millennium Money team. Then it expanded to all healthcare workers officially after December 2021. And now we have My Millennium Money medical Facebook group which is mainly for healthcare workers, and that's how it evolved. So on the 13th of December 2021, I posted an episode explaining my reasoning to amalgamate with My Millennial Money. That's why the first 136 episodes mainly used doctors as examples, and now I have a lot more examples of various healthcare worker types. Technically, though, my episodes can be for anyone. The numbers... The figures are just that. Numbers and figures. The principles and concepts of money, finance, investing does not change no matter what profession you are. In fact, I'm told that I have a large following amongst the train driving community in WA. So if you're listening, thank you and hello.
If you earn a million dollars per year, and yep, some of my listeners do earn a million dollars or two million dollars per year, it doesn't change the basic concepts like pay yourself first or fees matter or retirement strategies or personal insurance. That's why I specifically design my episodes about financial topics and concepts so it's more about an education channel rather than a chat channel for now. I hope to have guests one day or perhaps have listeners on the show for providing some inspiration. So hopefully that review, although only three out of five stars, really disappointing. That was a review that I had a five-star rating up until now, but um, I've got a 4.8 or 4.9. But hopefully to Inquisito65, if you're listening, that provides some context as to why the first 136 episodes of my channel was only mainly referencing doctors. So if you're listening, thank you very much for listening. Remember to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcast or whatever platform you may be using, or just leave a five-star review on every platform. That's even better. The more ratings and reviews you leave, the more people get access to these podcasts. So please keep them coming. In this episode, remember, we've talked about the stock market myths, the 10 myths, and we've also talked about wrap accounts and master trusts. And this is probably going to be one of my longest episodes ever. So thank you very much. My name's Dev Raga from My Millennial Money Medical. And until next time, please make sure you stay safe. We acknowledge the dark and young people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits and pay respect to their elders past and present. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive, Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, is an authorised representative of Money Sherpa, Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services licence 451289. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.